Climbing Mayhem. I'm glad you asked. One day, Ty Wolf Jones and I were talking about some of the biggest, hairiest problems on earth. And we started obsessing about the question, can sustainability and capitalism coexist? Look, because isn't what we've been doing the past 40 years not really working? No, it's not. And this blame the big business route where we've made for-profit companies and corporations the enemies, the martyrs of this climate mess we're in, isn't working. Well, don't get us wrong. It might be true. It just hasn't stopped us from emitting tons more carbon, creating tons more plastic waste, and degrading our landscapes even more every day. So don't we need to do something different? Isn't there a huge window of opportunity here? Yes, we need change, which means we need innovators, big thinkers, people out there willing to take the risks. Yes, we need people willing to tackle the hardest, most nebulous problem right now, climate change, and we need to align incentives to do so. They need to be able to make money off of these earth-defining solutions. So, coupling our love for startups and planet Earth, we had to talk to these people. And Climate Mayhem was born. So listen along while we speak with entrepreneurs and operators in different verticals of climate tech who are striving to make a difference. Oh, and make some money while doing it. And from some pretty incredible companies like Impossible Foods, EVgo, Drone Seed, Carbon Collective, Floodbase, and even mission-driven venture capitalists. And are you an entrepreneur or someone about to get into this space? Guarantee you'll definitely learn something from these impressive visionaries and learn just how possible it is to take on this seemingly impossible. Mayhem on. What if your investments could help you and the future of the planet at the same time? Today on Climate Mayhem, we answer that exact question and give you a secret to saving the planet and to securing your future. Zach Stein is the CEO and founder of Carbon Collective, the modern investment platform that combines cutting-edge technology with an earth-saving focus and a real human touch. Forget complexity and confusion. Carbon Collective simplifies your investing and helps the planet. Jacob, what else did we talk about? Today, we tackle some big challenges head on. One, how storytelling transforms the climate change conversation. You're going to see how Zach is really good at walking the talk. Two, exposing greenwashing. Now it's not just a buzzword. And three, Zach definitely stresses the immense financial impact of this global crisis and the money needed to invest from companies and individuals to make a difference. I mean, we covered a lot, but this episode isn't just educational. This is one of those companies you learn about that shows you how you can invest in making a difference today and helping yourself. So join us and Zach Stein for some mayhem as we shape a sustainable future. Mayhem on. Mayhem on. Zach. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. We are excited to get into the dirt. Uh, speaking of dirt. Soil. 
Speaking of soil, <laughs> love it, love it. You sold worm poop in a past life. How'd you get that mess? I did, I did. My, my first, I guess you could say, real job coming out of college was I graduated. This was in 2011, and I did this urban farming fellowship in Berkeley, and I became basically like a, a, a hippie farmer. There was uh, this woman who approached the farm at that time who said she had this worm composting business it was in, this was very bay area of that time she had a worm composting business in a giant warehouse that like everyone else was doing burning man art in and she would like like get compost horse manure into like premium high quality compost through worms in uh, it. and she was ready to get out of the business and she couldn't find anyone to buy it and so she donated it to the farm and so a few of the other fellows and i are like all right let's run this thing and so that's how I was able to pay my Bay Area rent by literally shoveling shit. How did you find customers for that poop? A number of ways. We ended selling to a lot of local nurseries. We started doing monthly worm composting workshops. And so they actually got pretty popular. And we would hold like worm uh, open hours at the farm where people could just like come and pick them up. So both either the worms or the compost. Um, at the time, we, we got a fair amount of, of um, marijuana farmers wanting it because it's like very high quality. Hmm. Um, so that definitely helped. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Very interesting. We heard a lot of your podcast episodes that you've been on before. And so it sounds like you had, there's many years of experience doing that. And um, I wouldn't say food and agriculture, but... I guess you just say agriculture. Uh, I heard you said in agriculture, it's actually can be kind of break even in uh, maybe that's specific to food of the emissions that are saved if we like do a better job there versus emissions created. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on where in agriculture that you're looking. So an area that that's pretty much not the case right now is like a lot of different forms of animal agriculture. So like raising chickens or raising cows, like those are currently like far more resource intensive going into it and the types of emissions that are coming from it. But especially in growing plants, there are ways, whether this is through things like silvopasture, where you can actually like integrate cows or doing no-till farming, where you can enable the microbes in the soil mm -hmm. to be able to build up and basically create carbon sinks and stores. Right now, our agricultural system emits carbon because anything like you can imagine all those root structures and stuff that gets like after you grow corn, like the corn, it's not just the, the top half of the plant, like there's the bottom yeah. that goes into the ground. Yeah. All those root structures are down in there. They're going to, once they harvest the corn, they're going to break down over time, but they'll do it relatively slowly. And that carbon is going to be eaten by like other microbes and stuff and generally turned into like other available nutrients underground. But if you till it all, you're basically grinding that up and bringing it all the way up to the surface again. And so in the, a lot of the ways that we kind of do industrialized agriculture, there's a lot of room for improvement. It's also like one of those things regenerative agriculture in general tends to pay for itself because the mm. plants can be far more resilient because of that. They Like you need far fewer pesticides um, yeah. and you can have higher yields because like soil health, I mean, it's how we started the podcast. It's not dirt, it's soil. <laughs> soil health is like, that is the key to a, huge. a, a healthy farm. It's huge. Yeah. No kidding. I uh, I did I did watch a documentary, Kiss the Ground, that taught me a lot of good stuff about soil, topsoil, and how we've depleted a lot of the, you know, the good, rich soil. I think, Ty, you, you mentioned, isn't in Washington, we have, you know, an amazing... Skadra Valley. 
Yeah. Yeah. Skagit Valley has some of the best topsoil still existing in the world, actually, at this point, top 2%. And I grew up in San Joaquin Valley down in California. So we've obviously decimated that largest agricultural area, you know, in the world. And yeah, the, 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 you know, came from the Tule Lake, the Tulare Lake, which is refilling right now as we're talking these last couple of weeks. But yeah, we've decimated the topsoil in that area and have to prop it up with a lot of chemicals and additives and other things to make it keep producing what it, what it, you know, you had produced, you know, in, in the past. Does that give some dad? Yeah. When we look at, like, you know, we, we just live in hard, scary times. Like <laughs> you could focus in on any yeah. one of these issues and, and topsoil degradation is, is certainly one of them where you could look at it and be like, oh my God, like. This is just the definition of unsustainable. Mm-hmm. You could look at things like bugs that are resistant to antibiotics. Resistant. Yeah, yeah resistant that's bugs. terrifying. We just live in a rapidly accelerating, challenging time that when you add in climate change, it can be really daunting. 100%. Zach, I think the audience is starting to get a little bit of a sense of, and Ty have uh, recently in researching you, you have a really comprehensive understanding of a lot of things with climate change and effects on on the earth and you also become very convicted in what you're doing it seems like your entire career we mentioned the the worm farming and the worm poop then you went into osmo systems which was optimizing systems for harvesting fish and shrimp and then now you've been doing carbon collective they're all purpose-driven companies what um how come you're you're so convicted and what like how have you always been this way it's it's impressive to us I very much appreciate that. I will say a line that I feel like at least meets my past very well, uh, which is history or uh, is only linear in the rear view mirror. So for me, like my life path, I could not have predicted coming out of college that I would get to Carbon Collective. It's not like I was some undergrad and be like, in 10 years, I want to build this type of business. It was this kind of constant process of seeing opportunities and then exploring them and going into them. So I, I think that is probably like the best explanation of why my very meandering path has gotten to me to where I am. And also just being generally interested about how the world works and the different issues with it. We live in as we said, very challenging, but also really fascinating times where mm-hmm. we have also not known to the same extent about the impact that we are having. Mm-hmm. And what's kind of most been most exciting at Carbon Collective, and as things have gotten further, is we're emerging from a place where to be environmentally friendly was to just not do do certain things it was just to be like less bad or maybe sacrifice mm-hmm. you know keep your thermostat turned down you wear a sweater house is <laughs> colder that doesn't feel as good as like going around in a t-shirt in your house in the winter um, right right it's just true but with things i mean especially with the fallen cost of renewable energy and just a lot of the other technologies like electric cars we're just in this different paradigm and with things like regenerative farming that we talked about where we're starting to see the kind of base incentives, which is like, I want to make more money. I want to wear a t-shirt, not a sweater. Uh, like these yeah. like basic comforts or things like that uh, start to align more so with what is actually on a path towards uh, a great, greater sustainability. So I know that doesn't directly answer your question, but that, that's at least what's got me to this point. But the rest of it has been like pretty just 
keeping my head down and not looking too far ahead. Did your parents instill that in you? I, it's, it, it is counter to what the path that most people take. I have to give a lot of credit to my parents. They really just let me find my own way. They definitely are people of strong ethics and morals. Like they took me to see an inconvenient truth in theaters mm-hmm. when I was 14. I didn't really know what climate change was. You know, it scared the crap out of me. Right. But I also remember at the same time, my dad being like, well, I've invested in Exxon, but like making us a lot of money right now. So we're going to stay that. But but he did, you know, buy a hybrid. Um, there you go. <laughs> but but that was part of the problem at that point, which where it was like to be environmental was to fundamentally sacrifice, mm-hmm. which was harder, which is a different stage than we're in now. So I, I think especially, you know, for me in my terms of my own climate journey, it, certainly in college and probably from like 2010 through 2016 thought that climate change was going to be an issue for my grandchildren not for you not really for me mm. for me it was I, I live in the bay area it was uh, beginning in 2016 but then the subsequent years of having a fire season and that mm. become a thing what had never been i grew up here it had never been like that growing up there wasn't like mm-hmm. in August through October, you would go outside and, and cautiously sniff the air every day. <laughs> that was a totally new experience. I was like, oh my God, this is here. Yeah. And then that plus the 2018 IPCC report saying like, we basically had 12 years at that point to cut emissions by 50%. And now it's four mm-hmm. years later. That was a huge, huge wake up call to the point that now it's like, Climate change is here. It is unavoidable. We are like almost without question. I mean, it's already here, but like we are, things are going to get worse before they get better. Mm-hmm. And the challenge of today is can we set us ourselves on a course where we can bottom out in terms of how bad it gets and then start reversing? Yeah. Yeah. I have this visualization of us. We're in like a fishing boat in Anchorage, Alaska. And we're like, you know, on the radar, it says there's going to be a big storm ahead. And like, already, it's like a little rough, but it's like, hey, we're, we're okay, right? But it's like, wow, it's really rough ahead of there. And you're going to have to go through it. And what do you do? And you can't help but to start thinking about it and being conscious of this is the relation of us to this. Then how do we get out of it, right? Yes, yes. And everything we have to do is hope that we don't hit that perfect storm moment right. where we're trying to climb the wave and just don't have the power to get yeah. over it. Yeah, we just don't know until then. So I guess jumping into the inception story of Carbon Collective, we want to talk less about why you started it. I think we're getting a good sense of that. We more want to understand, let's let's talk about like climbing that wave and if we're going to be able to, to climb over it. So why do we need to invest five to nine trillion dollars per year into climate tech and sustainability? companies. It seems like you came to that number. We heard it. How did you get to that number? It's it's a pretty specific number. Yeah. So there's a variety of reports on this. So let me, I'll speak at this on a more high level, then we'll get to the specific numbers. Sure. There's two paths that we take to quote unquote, solving climate change. We either have to stop using any type of technology and go back to pre-industrial levels of technology. So we have to go backwards or we have to go forwards where we continue using technology, but we build our way into society where we're able to do that without emitting stuff. Basically, we stop burning things like oil and coal and natural gas in order to power it. 
and build that world. I know that seems like an oversimplification, but it's also just, I think, pretty helpful. We go backwards or we go forwards. And I think the path to going backwards is never going to happen voluntarily. Mm. We are not going to give up air conditioning in a warming world. It's just not going to happen. So you're, you're not going to have 7 billion people or almost eight now around the world say like, yeah, you know what? We'll, we'll go back to like when animals were the main source of power <laughs> for the world. <laughs> it's just very unlikely, again, un unless we have societal collapse and where it happens right, right, involuntarily. Right. right. So what that leads is that we have to go forward. And so what is going forward to today? Well, we take what are the things that have big sources of emissions so things like electric electrical generation uh, electricity generation moving stuff whether that be on roads and uh, in through water or through the air and other forms of industrial processes also things like heating you know whether that's heating food it's heating the water in your house it's uh, uh heating up plastic to uh in injection molding machines um, all of those things you know a lot of them today that they use fossil fuels and for a lot of them we have a path to be able to do the same thing, often it's cheaper now without fossil fuels. So I could power my home and run it. I could you know, do my dishes, cook my food, heat my water, all with electricity. And I can generate all of that electricity from renewable energy and then store it in a battery to be used like at night when the sun isn't shining. Like that's all mm -hmm. theoretically possible. And to do a lot of that, I, it actually saves money over time. Mm -hmm. That's the age that we live in now. There's certain things that we don't yet have the right technology to fully be able to build our way out of, like True. cement and steel, but that's coming. There's a lot of yeah. innovation mm -hmm. going into it. And so when we say that five to nine trillion dollar number, it, it's grounded in that fact that just the only pathway forward, barring societal collapse, is to build our way out of that problem. And if you build anything, it takes money, it takes investment. To build that. And so the $5 trillion number is from the International Energy Agency, the IEA, and okay. their report of kind of net zero by 2050. That's more specifically just to the energy sector as a whole. Uh -huh. And then the $9 trillion number is from a McKinsey estimate of what that would need per year. That's a little bit broader. You know, Elon Musk dropped a number where he was like, it's going to cost, uh, you know, 10 trillion to be able to get there. He did that like earlier this week. So it's all basically ballpark. And, and where are we on this? Like what happened in 2022? About $1.1 trillion went into climate solutions. Awesome. High watermark ever. And about $1.1 trillion went into expanding fossil fuels. So new fossil fuel generation. And that's the thing. This was a part of the International Energy Agency's report. We actually have enough fossil fuel generation today. We have enough, we have enough extraction sites. If there's price issues, it's because we're not distributing it well enough. And so that, that's an industry that we actually should not be investing new assets for, for extraction, and instead just letting it naturally wind down. So net zero right there. That's uh, That's super interesting. All right. So we're at 1.1 trillion. What's the pace? Like, what's our pace year over year to that? A few years ago, this is maybe like 2019, we're at like 600 billion into climate solutions. So we've had basically a doubling since then. Yeah. Okay. And just what's different about now versus the last time we had quote unquote a clean tech boom, this was particularly in the VC space in the uh, 2010s, is just again, the economics are on the side of this. So like, solar is a very mature industry at this point. Mm -hmm. It has very, very known return 
profiles. It's not kind of this like big risk and return bet. And so a lot of the technology that's now surrounding that that's coming in is how do we optimize this? How do we make this way better? How do we build better software for siting? How do we like insure it and, and stuff like that? You know, same thing for other forms of renewables. And then you have energy storage that's quickly coming up with it. And then electric cars. We could do this whole podcast about how electric cars are going to change the world. 50% of the oil that is extracted today is burned in, on road transportation, on cars and trucks. And most of that is in passenger vehicles. It's in like things that it's in light duty vehicles, which is vehicles that is like in you're in my driveway. An electric car is just a better car. If you've ever driven in one, you've experienced it. If you've ever driven one, when you put your pedal down, like your head goes back. Head goes back. Yeah. <laughs> Everything you like in a car outside of maybe a loud noise. When you rev the engine, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, loud noise and smoke coming out of the stack. It's yeah. smoke coming out of it. An electric car is better. It yeah. is faster. It's faster off the line. It is way safer because it has a much lower center of gravity because it has batteries lining the entire bottom of it. So it's much harder to roll. It doesn't have a huge engine sitting in front of the driver. So if you crash head on, you don't have this engine that can go back and crush you in it. They're quieter. They cost a quarter of as much to maintain because you have like a tenth of the amount of moving parts as an internal combustion engine. There's just lots and lots of advantages for it, which is why. I were just at the beginning of seeing like what I project is going to be within the next 15 years, basically a complete market adoption of electric cars that like the like it will be a novelty to buy a fossil fuel powered car um, at that. We'll still have a number of them on the road, but they'll be phasing out uh, from the sheer economics of it. It's just going to be so much more sure. economical. Supply think... chain catches up, right? Like there's a supply yeah. chain question. Is that part of the five to nine trillion dollars? I just was yes. thinking through. Like it's yes. this idea of like we have to improve batteries, right? We've got to improve the supply chain of battery manufacturing. You've got to get those parts that are EV parts to, you know, the same supply chains because you know the oligarchy of the car industry is not going to change their supply chain tomorrow, right? So we got to somehow fit it in there. So there's some spending that seems to have to happen investing there, right? Absolutely, and like you know. Ford is investing billions in building out their EV infrastructure. And that infrastructure is like a lot of factories. And it's like, how do you secure supply chain of like, you know, critical materials like lithium and stuff like that? So and this is where like Tesla has had such a strong lead and like why having like the gigafactories for making batteries was such a smart move on their behalf, where they were able to kind of secure those supply chains and, and be able to have that done in-house. It, it's part of what's enabled them to generate and then still have this lead really secured for them. So you're bullish on climate tech. I guess we're, if we're kind of like shift back over to the to stocks and investing, how did you get to robo-investing as a vehicle to solve this? This is... This is pretty far and different from the worm agriculture, shit. <laughs> you know, all of that stuff. This is this is this is a world apart. How, how yeah. did you end up landing on this? Yeah. So when we started exploring what Carbon Collective could be, we conducted this massive user research process where we did the kind of deepest part of it was we did 120 hour long interviews with people that had some level of climate anxiety and seen like what actions did they take and where did it lead them and investing was this place again and again that they came to where they felt like they got stuck where mm -hmm. what wall street was offering in terms of sustainable investing 
which it can be helpful to do some terminology here. So when we say sustainable investing, what we mean is investing that is accounts for a secular trend. And specifically here, the secular trend of climate change. A secular trend is something that like happens off a balance sheet in investing. So like you're not going to mm-hmm. see necessarily that reflected on a company's profit and loss statement, but it is broadly pushing here. So the secular yeah. trend of climate change, which is that our world is undergoing a vast transformation and that there is significant risk and also significant opportunity is the lens that we believe sustainable investing should be taking. And what Wall Street was kind of trying to put that square peg into the round hole of ESG. And Mm -hmm. ESG, you've probably heard of it, is an acronym that stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And what ESG uh, was originally invented was it was invented basically by hedge funds as a way of diversifying across new classes of risk. Because diversification is the name of the game. in investing. And even if you were just investing, looking at balance sheets, you wouldn't be able to see like how much water risk is my portfolio exposed to if there's a drought in this area or if this type of trend continues to to persist, like how much exposure do I have to that risk? I might want to diversify more out of that. Or if there's like, you know, broad social unrest or or things like that. And so Mm -hmm. ESG was originally invented for that. And, And what it's innovation was, was it quantified that type of risk for the first time. So you had these analysts that would go in on a company basis and basically answer like 100 questions on a scale from zero to 10 on different environmental aspects with the company. Same thing for social, same thing for governance. Then they'd average all those scores together to get a single E score, single S score, single G score. Then you'd average those together and you get a single E, S, and G score. What then happened was other Other people, like those who are looking for sustainable investments or impact investments, which is, I'm going to make a change with my money. That's going to have a tangible change on the real world. People are looking for that. Or values-aligned investing. I'm saying, like, I I just don't want to be invested in certain things that, like, aren't aligned with my values. Mm -hmm. Lobbed on to this because it was quantifying these things for the first time. So that's kind of the broad trend yeah, that we totally. saw happening was that like- It's an this, oversimplification, like, oh, I got a number I can that kind of touches on this. That's got to be it. That's where I'm going to start to- Exactly. Yeah. And so then people would like look at it and be like, all right, but like, I don't get why this is still here. This is just like 99% of the S&P 500. Like, how is this actually better? How is this actually sustainable? How is this actually impactful? Because a lot of people are, you know, actually like looking for both. And so that's yep. what led us to say we should really be looking at stock market through this lens of what has to happen to solve climate change to us, the most critical issue of our time, which we cannot do without investing. And what is the science telling us that that has to happen there? And so that's kind of what led us to our portfolios and then wanting to make them accessible to people like ourselves in doing so which led us to starting the robo-advisor. So you said in there, I just want to check on something. You said in there in your interviews that you talked to people who had some climate anxiety. When you started to kind of zero in on this idea of, a, of an investment vehicle or investing, robo-investing, this, this platform being the kind of central product that you're, do you then start to talk to others? Because, you know, money, people have lots of opinions about money. So now to make this thing viable, it feels like you need to check with others too that maybe 
don't give a crap about climate change. Yeah, absolutely. This is like, how do we kind of build our portfolios in such a way that like they're smart investments? And this is, you know, because this is not charity, like your IRA, your 401k, like your, your, your primary reason of saving in that is retirement. Yep. it's it's not just yep. to, to solve quit. climate change i want to yeah. quit tomorrow zach yeah. give me a fund that'll do that <laughs> it's all my values solves all the climate challenges and i make a million dollars exactly exactly and so how could we take what you know to us in our generation was taught was like the smartest ways to invest which is passive investing where you're investing with basically as much of the market as possible with as low fees as possible in a way where you're just going to set and forget. And so to us, we're saying, all right, how do we apply these principles, but through this clear lens of climate? And so for us, what that meant is that we don't hold companies that cannot exist in a climate stable world, technologies like that. So things like oil and gas and petrochemicals, Mm -hmm. we give their share, we overweight because we have to overinvest into climate technologies, the companies that are building solutions to climate change. And we look at this much more broadly than what you might traditionally think of just like solar and wind. If you're familiar with resources like those like Project Drawdown, which is lists well over 100 industries that need to massively scale for us to build our way out of solving climate change. That's what we draw that from. And then broadly holding the remainder of the stock market, because these are the companies whose core businesses have no reason that they could not exist in a climate-stable world. Just what changes is a lot of the things we talked about of what you have to build our way out of, how they get their power how they deliver Mm. their goods, how they generate the heat for their industrial processes. That's what has to change. And so that's Mm -hmm. where we as investors should actually be able to like put ourselves in a position to use our power to try and push that faster and push on specifically the areas where it makes financial sense for the company. How do we make this as much of a win-win as possible? I love it. And I think that's what you were alluding to your rhyme that you you created, (laughs) which I dig. And you've said it all over the place. So I'm going to try to say it. I believe it's divest, reinvest, and pressure the rest. You got it. Did I get it? Okay. You got it. So I'm imagining you're going to that pressure the rest, right? So you hold a lot of stocks and companies that you think can make a change. And then your idea of pressuring them is, as a shareholder, I'm going to come in and pressure them. So a couple questions there I've been thinking about. If I go and buy a bunch of carbon offsets, does that answer that that requirement for a pressure the rest type of company? No. Like carbon offsets are fine if they are done in tandem with carbon reduction. Mm-hmm. Carbon offsets are not fine if they're not done in tandem with that. Mm-hmm. Again, there are certain industries where we just simply don't have the technology today and that like realistically they're not going anywhere. Like long haul flights. There are certain technologies we could use, like sustainable aviation fuels that are like just kind of coming to market. They're more expensive and they still have a carbon footprint. You're still burning things. You're just not burning ancient fossilized fuels. You're burning fuels that were a part of the current carbon cycle because they're just derived from existing plants. But like how they have 30% less. Like when I ever go to Google flights, they're like 30% less emissions for this flight. That's usually the numbers, 23 to 30%. Is that because they're using current plants? Sorry, a little tangent. 
I don't know specifically for Google Flights with it. It could be the, if you're having like multiple stops, like it uses more emissions to take off and land a plane mm -hmm, um, right. versus do it going nonstop. It could be potentially on, on the route or the type of aircraft that mm -hmm. is flying. So I'm not exactly sure. Sure. Uh, uh, sustainable aviation fuel is, I think it is like just starting to be used in the aviation industry. And the major airlines are very aware of the fact that there's no near term solution because like a jet engine is, a, is it's a miraculous piece of technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's very simple and you take, you don't only need to bring up half the fuel in the plane with you because the other half is just air. Yeah. You're, you're just, yeah, you're, yeah. you're pressurizing and combusting it in the engine itself. So Amazing. if you imagine yeah. doing that with a, like uh, electricity, you in like a propeller, you'd have to bring up basically double the amount of energy mm. up into the air with you, which is why we haven't seen any kind of electric powered aircraft. I mean, A, they don't, they're not jet engines because they're not combusting things, but B, because it's just like the, the amount of battery load you'd have to bring into the air basically means like you couldn't bring anything else. <laughs> With you, you can bring yeah. people or cargo. Although I think a Swiss company did just come up with a battery-powered plane. A lot of people are skeptical. Nobody, nobody wants to get in it. Well, but there's, there's like a Swiss company, I believe, or a Dutch company that there, just there's a number that are one. doing um, uh, short haul flights, ah, which it makes yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of sense for. But for long haul flights, because you also got like it, it. don't want to fly 200 miles per hour from San Francisco to Australia. <laughs> You want to go at like 650 <laughs> miles per hour in a jet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair, fair. Well, and it still feels like you've got a bunch of batteries on there, like you were saying. And where am I going to put my luggage? Where do the people, you know, there, it sounds like there's there's still a lot to figure out. Um, there's still there. a lot to figure out yeah, on that. Yeah. But that's an example of an industry that uh, where carbon offsets are basically the only solution right only now way. for that industry, which isn't going anywhere to reach a net zero position. The other one, again, is sustainable aviation fuel, where instead of putting in kerosene, which is what uh, is used in jet engines, that's jet fuel, which is going to be derived from oil, you would just do it from something that's derived from plants today, yeah. which again, yeah. still emitting, but it's not ancient carbon that's been stored. It was yep. carbon that was taken from the atmosphere in a plant that it converted to oil, then re-released into the atmosphere from burning it. You're in, the, you're in today's carbon cycle. And so you're saying these may, a, a company like that that's buying carbon offsets may fall into one of your funds or in an area that you might put some of the the, the assets under management that you have because uh, carbon I, I, offsets are okay for that, that arena. Absolutely. What we look at is not necessarily the behavior of the company itself. We look at how does the company make money? And if the product, if the industry in which the company makes money, if that could be decarbonized with today's technology, then we hold it. In most industries, that's the case. We actually don't hold airlines because of that, because they actually cannot be decarbonized with today's technology. So I asked all these questions kind of leadingly because I want to talk about something you've brought up a lot, which Jacob and I fundamentally believe with this podcast, which is storytelling is a part of the solution. And I think you've even said, what we have actually in the climate change world, the sustainability world is a storytelling problem. Yes. And so, you know, I had you explain of a fair amount of that to kind of show that there's a lot behind these questions, these decisions, 
I want to give you $100 a month, Zach, so that you put my money somewhere that goes with my values. How the heck do we tell this story sexy enough, compelling enough, that changes the game? You said it yourself. This is a storytelling problem. Yes. You just said a lot of really cool science that doesn't get me <laughs> to necessarily open my wallet. How do we fix this storytelling problem? How are you thinking about fixing this storytelling problem? Yeah, I think that climate change, like if you had to name a single problem of what's holding back ourselves back from solving climate change, it is storytelling. And a lot of it is because of this legacy position that to take climate action, whether this is as an individual or as a company or as a state, is to sacrifice. It is to give something up. And an analogy that I've used before, and I'll use it again here because I think it's really good, is if we imagine me back when I was 14 singing Inconvenient Truth, uh, I, I got out of that theater. This was in like 2006. I got out of that theater and an activist handed me i was like really dazed it was it was one of those times like you see a movie during the day and then you walk out and you're like whoa like whoa yeah yeah like hurts your eyes it's like an an activist he handed me uh, a piece of carob chocolate which is like if you ever had it before it's kind of like a chocolate alternative yeah uh, yeah my mom gave me lots of carob chocolate my day yeah Yeah, exactly (laughs) it's chalky um it's fine it's not nearly as good as chocolate. <laughs> it's not chocolate, man. It's not no chocolate. Way. And that was yeah. the problem at that time, which is to take basically any climate action was to fundamentally say, I'm gonna eat carob chocolate. I'm gonna I'm gonna even though I know chocolate is way better. And the yeah. difference of now is and so that story has been a the a legacy that is still very much to now. Whereas the example of now is like when it comes like if you have the money to buy a new car and you're looking at an electric car or gas-powered car, like the carob chocolate one is in some ways the gas-powered car. Yeah, now. getting there for sure. You know, again, it's not as fast. It's not nearly well, and, as convenient. Th- and it's thanks break to more. Tesla, right? Like thanks to Tesla. Like we've got to call a spade a yes. spade. Let's yes. say what yes. you will. I know a lot of people have had lots of opinions about Elon Musk and even this company, but Tesla made ev sexy it, it, it is indisputable like elon musk has done some batshit crazy things but tesla has probably single-handedly accelerated the rate of adoption and building of evs by probably a few years which mm-hmm. could be like right. a difference maker when it comes to right. climate so yeah. like in, in the story question i mean i think it just goes broader we've actually done a pretty good job in the environmental movement of bringing the awareness of climate change around it is you know broadly known whether you believe in it or not like you've heard of it yeah you probably have some understanding yeah, yeah, yeah. of how it works you know what causes it what we haven't done though is then do the next step of saying okay and this is what it needs to happen to actually solve it right there's kind of this big that- gap but couldn't you also say the reason people know is because we took away their straws and we told them that we're going to take their gas stoves, you know, just in the last six months, like we were like, they're coming for your gas stove. And so, I mean, to the storytelling problem part is like, part of the problem is it's a negative story. Like the story sucks. It's the carob chocolate story for everything. And so you could say, yes, we've gotten awareness out there, but is it the right awareness? Like, have we just pissed off the people we we really need to be talking to more? Yeah. 
Yeah, the place I come back to is about 20% of the U.S. would self-identify as progressive politically. Mm. So it's like, these are the people, like, you'd say, all right, we could ignore everyone else. Not that we should, but let's just, for this hypothetical, mm-hmm. say we do. That for the people that would identify as progressive, what percent of them could, like, explain the pathway to solving climate change? What percent mm-hmm. of them could say, like, oh, this is what, in a climate-stable world, what the world will look like and how it will operate, and these are the benefits of that. That is what we're missing, because even the people who should most know that information, they largely don't. And that's where we got, that's where we fall back onto these old paradigms of just saying, like, well, fuck you, you're evil for eating your hamburger, or like, not using a plastic straw, or having a non-gas stove, or something like that, instead of being like, no, 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 like, the world is just fundamentally better where we solve climate change, not just because we solve climate change, but like, do you think people should die from air pollution? No. Right. Do you like like having your housing expenses be less? Yes. <laughs> There's like yes. all of these pieces like that. Do you want that smoke world. in the air every auto, every August? <laughs> yeah, you can't yeah. walk outside. Or like have yeah. Cancer Alley in Louisiana right. be a thing. Right. Or, yeah. you know, we all got to see a little preview of this. Do you remember in COVID at the beginning of the lockdowns when there was all those images from like different cities around the world that, mm. where you could like see the mountains for the first time mm. in decades? Yep. Yep. Like that yep. is what we should all be saying. That's what solving climate change looks like. Interesting. It is Interesting. a world where we're all still operating, but but we saw what that looks like because yeah. 10 million people a year are dying from air pollution. Uh, yeah. No doubt. And I and I would argue I, I agree with you. I think we've got to do it without the fact that there needs to be a pandemic, right? Or there needs to be other sacrifices. And I, and, and you teed up my next idea of, you know, where I really want to go with this, with the comment around the progressives and not really understanding or not having a clear picture. I would argue, though some would, and, and they would lean into that sacrifice story, and they would lean into the anti-capitalist story. I bring this up for twofold reasons, which is one, <laughs> Jacob and I are literally building a podcast to talk to capitalists who care about the the environment and want to coexist or even create a climate sustainable, you know, future, like you're saying, but arguably you did the most capitalistic thing, or you're building one of the most capitalistic platforms out there, which is a stock investing platform or an investment platform, because the stock market was invented by this concept of profit and loss and having others be able to get investment in these capital markets, right? How do you balance this idea of climate and capitalism needing to coexist? Or maybe a better way, another way to say it is, how do you counter the argument that we got to tear down all capitalism? Capitalism is the problem. Capitalism is one of the things that we got to get rid of in this climate perfect future. Yeah. It's such an interesting question. You find it helpful in questions like this to go to the extremes. So like an example, and I might misquote this, but I, I read this in Donut Economics, which is a, a great book that I, I would you know suggest everyone reads. And if we continue growing at a 2% annual growth rate, like GDP, for mm-hmm. a million years... We would literally run out of atoms in the universe. It's like some like right. crazy stat like that. Right. So it's right, like right. there's just like a fundamental, like there's just not enough stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> element yeah. to it, which I think is what the 
the kind of the well the problem is capitalism response is some of it is kind of fundamentally grounded in I was saying like we've been on this upward treadmill, but it just has like fundamental natural limits because when you trace back like GDP growth, you almost always get back to natural resources that are being extracted uh, and used. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to thinking about climate change, the place that is helpful for us to go back to is that scenario I talked about. Like we have two paths, backwards or forwards. The backwards path is really unlikely to go voluntarily, which means the only path is forwards. And we have to do this really quickly. And to us, then we have to ask the question of what, how can we reach that goal of being on track towards a climate stable world as quickly as possible, with as a high likelihood as possible of happening. And the more barriers we put in the way, the more fundamental shifts about the world that we put in the way. So like, I'll give an example. It's not related to capitalism at all, but I think it will illustrate this point, is if we say like, look, the real problem with climate change is that human beings have lost their fundamental connection with the natural world. I think that's really true. Like, yes, that's like I think true. there's a very yeah. strong argument yeah. with that. We do not have this innate sense that we are just a part of this. We do not feel the pain that we are solving from sure. it. We've created all these artificial barriers from it. Absolutely. So if you're going to work backwards from that, you could say, okay, we need to get like seven to eight billion people to like like rekindle or those of us who have lost it to rekindle their connection with the natural world. I don't think that's going to re- lead to a 50% reduction in emissions from 20, 2005 levels by 2030. It's just not going to happen in, in that time frame. And so that's a part of the problem is that when we look at climate change, we have a ticking clock. We're in a race against time. And the advantage that we have right now is that we can continue operating with one of the most powerful driving forces, which is the return on capital, is now aligned with the scaling of many of the necessary climate solutions. So I I get in debates with some of my friends on this who are kind of part of the degrowth movement, which I think is really important and very interesting given the the, there's not enough atoms in the universe argument. Like that is just (laughs) true. Like there's some point in which there needs to be some type of shift here. And you could talk about like the metaverse or software or the, the <laughs> other aspects or, you know, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. AI singularity, who knows? But that is why we think it's actually not that useful of a question right now. Where it is useful, I think, is a, a question of climate justice, where we had in the previous energy transition and the transition from using animal to fossil fuel power, we had some communities like those that I grew up in as a, you know, a white guy in the middle class that really weren't touched environmentally by that. I didn't have to inhale air pollution or have higher risks of cancer or anything like that. And a lot of people that don't look like me and didn't have my economic background paid the price for that. And so it's how do we not have that happen again? I think that is a really important thing to hold in this process, but it's to some degree a different question. We just need as much capital going into this as quickly as possible. And so if you say that to be capitalistic is to say we need growth, like we do not necessarily need growth everywhere, but we absolutely need growth here and we need degrowth in the fossil fuel industry. Whoa, what a blast. What'd you think so far? Are you hungry for more? Go check out part two of this conversation. But before you go, could you do us a huge favor and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it right now? It'd mean the world to us. Oh, 
And if you're feeling a little frisky and you want to give us some feedback, go to climatemayhem.com where you'll find our contact link. See you soon. Thank you.